Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Colt Report podcast. Today, we're going back to the year 2000, specifically November 7th, 2000, or the election night of the 43rd president of the United States. To set the scene, let's explain what the situation was on the night of November 7th, 2000. So the front runner for the Republican nomination was uh, Texas Governor George Walker Bush. Uh, and the front runner for the Democratic nomination was then Vice President Albert Gore, Vice President to 42nd President of the United States, two-term President Bill Clinton. The night of November 7th uh, highlighted some major discrepancies in the electoral system in the United States, namely um, how the Electoral College and the popular vote clashed at times throughout history. Um, now, Grace, uh, this is a little bit of a complex case, but it's not too difficult to understand because it, it, you know, fundamentally what it boils down to was how the judiciary clashed in the electoral process, uh, which is something that is very prevalent uh, even today, uh, the election between uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump was something that really stirred the pot again. And this is something that's happened now five times throughout American history and it's very easy to foresee that another clash uh, could possibly take place uh, in the near future again as we approach the uh, uh, election cycle for 2024. So let's talk about what the problem was and how it got to the Supreme Court. So let's start off by saying that um, as the states kind of, uh, as, as all the people started to vote on the, uh, the night of the 27th, oh, sorry, the 7th of November, each state started to be confirmed for one nominee or the other. Um, I guess what this is probably a great time to introduce the idea of the Electoral College, if people aren't familiar. So in the United States, the Electoral College is essentially a system where the populace of a state will vote for uh, whichever candidate you know they want. But whoever has the most popular votes within a state gets a certain amount of electoral votes. And that's what we refer to as the winner-take-all system. So if, you know, there's 10 million people in a state and I get 5 million and one, I get the entire state's electoral votes. Uh, and in the United States, you need 270 electoral votes to win the presidency. Doesn't matter how many popular votes you have, which is something that many people don't understand even today, uh, as U.S. civics are kind of on the decline. <laughs> But uh, regardless, let's talk about it. So uh, in the year 2000, the state of Florida had just passed a burgeoning population of 16 million, uh, which meant that it had a generally larger amount of electoral votes compared to less populous states like Wyoming or Montana or North Dakota. So they had uh, 25 electoral votes for the state. Uh, in comparison, that's, you know, California is generally one of the more populous states. Uh, and at, at, in the year 2000, they had 54 electoral votes. So Florida had the fourth most electoral votes. Now, going into the night, as all the states began to be confirmed, there was still, it was still too close to call in Florida. So coming into the night, uh, that left uh, Vice President Gore with 266 electoral votes and um, Texas Governor George W. Bush with 246. So Gore needed four points and Bush needed uh, 24. Uh, 
Um, so with that being said, the only state that was still up in the air was Florida. So whoever wins Florida would win the presidency and become the 43rd president of the United States. So at the night, it was polled that, it was predicted rather, that Bush would win Florida by a mere 1,700 votes. The problem being there were more than 6 million ballots cast in the state of Florida alone. So this was within 0.5% of the total ballots, which meant that an automatic recount would, was triggered. Um, so this meant that there would be an automatic machine recount to see and revalidate, re-verify every single vote that was cast to see you know, if there actually was you know, a, a more modest discrepancy or you know, if, um, if the results were actually you know, valid and accurate. Uh, the problem being, once the, this recount process was done, that 1,700 mo that seventeen hundred vote margin had shrunk to merely 317 votes between the two candidates, which would end up determining the entire uh, election of 2000 and the 43rd president, um, which is utterly insane. So uh, before we get into it and the cascading process of you know, ballot recounting and all that, uh, let's talk about what the actual issue was, and again, we'll get to this later, but what the actual issue was with the um, Supreme Court, how it got to the Supreme Court. So the question was, did the Florida Supreme Court violate the Constitution, specifically Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2 of the U.S. Constitution by making new election laws, and then do standardless manual recounts of manually recounting ballots, does that violate the equal protection uh, and due process clauses of the Constitution. So before we kind of, you know, unpack that, let's actually just read the uh, specific clause that they're mentioning, just so people can kind of understand the obscurity of the Constitution and uh, how it kind of plays into the case that we're talking about. So Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2 states verbatim, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in the Congress. But no senator or representative of person holding an office of trust or profit under the United States shall be appointed an elector. So if you're you know, not reading that actively and just kind of hearing that, that kind of sounds like just a bunch of, you know, legal jargon. And what am I actually reading here? But it's a little bit more complicated and convoluted. And there's still ongoing debate even today about the, you know, decision that was cast by the U.S. Supreme Court. But, you know, as we break it down, just keep in mind that essentially the conflict is between the Florida Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, and the method of counting, manually recounting, ballots uh, after the fact that you know ballots were counted by machines. So Grace, do you want to kind of explain to the people here, you know, the different types of ballots? And I know we're going to kind of break it down into the whole process and timeline, but can you just mention after the machine ballots were counted, the hand ballots, what was the problem with them? Could you just kind of give people a little bit of a, a background briefly? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think one of the big things about this case is like the manual recount itself is very difficult because um, I think the more like popular one that people learn about like in their 
civics classes is the hanging chads they're called and they're basically the paper ballots but they're incompletely punched so it's kind of hard to see like who the person was voting for like that kind of thing to make it like very clear because this is a thing where it's like you know you can't really say oh it looks like it was this one but it was actually this one like we think it's this one because it's at this point when it's only you know 300 something of a difference it really matters so that was one of the main ones um there's also pregnant chads which are the same paper ballots but they're sort of like dimpled and not fully pierced all the way through um and then the more simple ones that i think somewhat self-explanatory but they were still also a big thing were over and under votes so like when someone votes for multiple candidates when they're only allowed to vote for one or if people don't vote at all and those were kind of the big things that kind of this case is so convoluted in so many ways but even that like simple these little like hiccups in the process were a big big issue and so that was like one of the main hindrances to like this something that should have been somewhat simple and that all kind of compiles later to go hand in hand with like the general controversy over whether or not this recount should have been allowed so those are just kind of the four main like easy to explain ones that made the process so complex okay let's um thank thank you first of all for explaining that because uh, for some people it's there there's you know the kind of the idea that there's different types of ballots and that you know they, they get confused because well why are they all the same or why were they not punched properly but you know we got to keep in mind that this was before uh largely before you know all polling centers were you know electronic and um it, it was a much more uh um, analog form of uh, election process um but let's get into the actual kind of timeline here so election night uh november november 7th 2000 you know uh the results are inconclusive because all but florida is uh is determined uh because it's such a small margin between the two candidates so we get to november 9th and uh gore's vice president gore's um uh you know uh campaign team uh, files for a hand recount in four specific counties in florida so that's Volusia County, Miami-Dade County, Broward County, and Palm Beach counties. Uh, for for reference, this is essentially the city of Jacksonville, uh, Palm Beach, Fort Lauderdale, and uh, Miami, which were all uh, or still continue to be some of the most uh, urban, uh, major urban centers on the eastern side of uh, Florida, uh, on the ocean side. So, um, by Florida law. Gore was allowed to do this, but the problem was uh, that a decision had to be filed by December 12th of that year because there was a uh, statute, sorry, a, 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 a rule um, stating, uh, what, what was it called? The uh, the fair, um, sorry, was... the safe harbor, the safe harbor rule. Yep, uh, meaning, safe harbor. Yes, yes, uh, that a decision had to be made six days before a meeting of uh, electoral members, right? If I, am I right in saying that? Yes, and also just briefly to add in um, something that also made this whole thing, again, adding to the controversy, there was very briefly a lot of conflicts of interest with um, both sides, with uh, George Bush's brother being the Florida, Florida governor at the time, and then the secretary of state at the time was his like co-chair of his campaign. And then on the other hand, um, the main Florida attorney was the other one was heading the Gore campaign. So those that's just a little sidetrack, but few other things that made this a little more complicated at the same time. Right. I mean, for, for someone on the outside, it almost seems maybe that there could be a case of a 
you know, I, I guess it kind of goes hand in hand that some people might view it as nepotism for George Bush with his brother being the governor of the state and then, you know, a, a campaign advocate also being the, you know, the secretary of state. But also, on the other hand, it's it's confusing why Gore gets to decide specific counties to, to do a manual recount when it's so close between both candidates, why it was Gore's decision to choose those four counties. That that part's not as clear in the in the records and as history is kind of highlighted, it's been more passed on that fact and less so on a, uh, on you know the Supreme Court's um, decision to overrule Florida uh, and how they kind of had a, a a guiding hand in the electoral process itself. But let's go back. So we get to um, Bush, sorry Gore deciding those four counties, and then the manual recount begins. So when this happens, Bush's legal team immediately files to stop this from happening in federal court. So the problem then kind of escalates when both of, when all four of these counties have trouble uh, in the manual recount process, just because, it, like you mentioned, it's so tedious having to determine between, you know, pretty much limitless votes, uh, whether or not they were punched properly or which candidate was actually you know, intended to be voted for. Um, so one county just gives up trying. Multiple others can't meet the deadline that they're handed. So this goes to Florida Secretary of State Catherine Harris saying that the deadline will not be extended beyond November 14th for, you know, certifying the election results. So then this becomes a legal battle between Florida Secretary of State, you know, Bush's legal team, Gore's legal team, the Florida Supreme Court. And then we get to bush appealing so bush appear bush appeals to the 11th circuit um that you know he's is uh his constitutional rights are being violated um because florida if you wanted to if you wanted to kind of hit on why florida is in the mix here why they were essentially in violation of you know uh, uh bush's constitutional right to have these you know election results certified again and again the main thing was basically that, like, what we were talking about earlier, um, a lot of just the inconsistency with the manual vote recounts was the main reason um, why, like, the violation of the Equal Protection Clause, I, from what I understand, was, like, at hand here. Um, and technically, Gore's, like, big, like, his whole team kind of argued that since the vote had, like, on paper been decided... There was really no need to review it at a federal level. So, like those two things combined, like aside from the safe harbor deadline and all that, was basically like sort of like because these vote methods and the like the recount methods were not sound, it was almost substantial enough to say on one side that it could be seen as violating the equal protection clause. And that kind of just like escalated from there. Okay. So we get to this point, and now all four counties are a mess because there's no standardization of a manual recount, and that's essentially what it boiled down to. So what it was is that Catherine Harris, the Florida Secretary of State, was uh, found to not have been in violation of her role because even though she was a member or an advocate of, uh, you know, an advisor to Bush's campaign team, she was still allowed by law to not arbitrarily uh, reject uh, additional ballots that came in after the deadline, but even though it was it was her intention to do so, so there was no violation there. But as Gore's team 
continued asking for, you know, an extended deadline for these ballots to be counted in. Um, they also sought to recount even more disputed ballots and to discount um, tens of thousands of absentee ballots. So this, keep in mind, this is an ongoing process. And at this point in history, uh, you know, it's it's been now weeks and there has been no elected president to take over uh, for the year 2000 or uh, to start in the year 2001, um, which was, uh, you know, very unsettling and uh, very unpredictable in, you know, American society. It's something that hasn't really happened before. Um, so we get to the Supreme Court. And as I said before, it's a, a mention of Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2, uh, essentially over the standardization of the recount procedure. So even though it came down to a margin of only a couple hundred votes, it really could have gone either way. But it feels like essentially at the end of the day, the idea was that, you know, we can keep recounting again and again and again and get different results every time. So, you know, we have to eventually pick a president you know, it, the result was still the same both times at the initial count from, you know, even though it had dropped from 1700 to, you know, 327, 317, that it, even though it was a marginally minuscule percent difference between the two, essentially some decision had to be made. Um, but it was seen that, you know, Florida was in violation because they could not create electoral laws themselves that was solely in the hands of the Constitution. They could not just improvise law, you know, to to make their own decision. They had to abide by the highest law in the land, by the highest court in the land. Exactly. And I think, um, I think too, like that really highlights with this case how, with almost every case, but especially this one, because you can see like, just like the judicial and the executive branches, like very obviously clashing directly here. And sort of, as this thing sort of unravels and they're like, you know, how do we approach this? How do we do the recount? And more and more questions come out. It shows like how this sort of policy is like being kind of adopted and changed as these questions are asked and how like that can become so chaotic. Um, we see like a lot of relevance to today, of course. And then I think another important part to talk about too is that there was a lot of criticism over the reliance on the, um, what is it, the safe harbor issue because a lot of like a lot of the decision kind of rested on that um part of the decision like so when they said i think it was justice john paul stevens in his dissent he was claiming like not only did the sort of case itself and like the decision being made here violate um like the tenets of federalism it also he criticizes this he says it's like an excuse saying that like this deadline is somewhat arbitrary and that it doesn't really prohibit like the states from it shouldn't prohibit them from counting the votes to determine like a winner because that's almost just like putting it off more because if they use this like oh you can't do it past there it just it kind of shows how that like more convincing part of the argument is almost like arguably not super applicable and it was just kind of used to like further the decision in the case and there's still questions today of like did that really really matter like of course it couldn't go on and on and on right. but with like the dates that this case is happening on it was just like the perfect timing of it it's like did that really matter as much as it was said to yeah it was very difficult with the timing because even though you know the election was november 7th it was it was the you know the continued weeks of battling in the court to try and extend these deadlines in the four counties for their recount the lack of standardization 
between the four counties and how they were recounting the manual ballots by hand. And to kind of elaborate more on the safe harbor provision, the Supreme Court justices were facing an extraordinarily, almost essentially unprecedented time constraint because with the safe harbor, the safe harbor provision, which is a you know federal law three United States Code section five, um, which states that a state must determine its electors six days before the electoral college members meet in person, and in two thousand that deadline was set at December twelfth. So the court heard the arguments on the eleventh, and had just one day to come to a decision which would ultimately determine the presidency. So what, yeah, I mean, with Stevens dissent, you know, a lot of people can kind of see how that's an arbitrary deadline and how it really wouldn't affect, you know, the, the process of government, even though, you know, a deadline had been set because something as important as, as the presidency shouldn't really be a rushed process. But at the end of the day, we also do need, you know, a, a commander in chief to be, you know, ready to, you know, take the reins, that this isn't something you can kind of just pick up in a week. You have to have things in motion months ahead of time. And th this has already been dragging on for, you know, almost a month and a half at this point. So with a single day to decide, we get to the 7-2 decision that Bush had his equal, pro equal protection rights. Again, that Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2, his rights were violated because there was no standardization between the uh, recount process. Um, and then, Grace, if you want to talk about the second part of the decision, the 5-4 vote, uh, again, that, I know you kind of talked a little bit about it with the safe harbor deadline, but if you wanted to talk about you know, the justices themselves and what they came to. I know there are more along ideological lines with this vote, but at the end of the day, the 7-2 vote's the one that matters, but I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to mention about that. I think so. That one is basically was kind of guided by the safe harbor clause and all of that. But I guess like just going a little bit more into it, um, I think it's really interesting because like that is so much more like a piece of the case than I think people often realize. Um it was a very like ideological driven i know it's of course like not supposed to be but um very driven by ideology and i think um one of the biggest things about that is that like he remained the certified winner and when gore conceded like originally um i think like that deadline was sort of of course it was important and i think like like you said, like there needs to be some sort of timeline on this. Um, but I think just looking at like the impossibility of trying to figure out like going from there, what would have happened if like the recounts were permitted or if this deadline was pushed, like just simply the not knowing shows really how important, like the fact that that remained an important factor in the decision was like how central it was to the decision. Right. And then I think a really interesting note too is, um, as complicated as it is, I think a lot of those who um, were not like among the people dissenting, like the justices dissenting, a lot of them saw it as a much more simple issue, which I think is really, really interesting because 
in a way, like you can see it as simple. It's like basically does the states or do the states or does the Supreme Court have the decision to make in one lens, it's to make rules about like state law and like state election law and state like practice and that, but it's also like deciding the president, which obviously is like a federal like thing. So I think that's a really interesting way to look at it because both sides had somewhat at least to an extent convincing perspectives and the fact that they were like those who were arguing against the decision were like basically saying um that like so much interference in state election policy is bad because it creates like this uniform thing where like they can regulate it and and make certain mandates about it and then the other lens it's like the people who, you know, everyone in favor of the decision was saying like, well, this is a federal issue, like it's the presidency. So I think that is one of the biggest things coming from that 5-4 decision, because of course that's basically as close as you can get without tying. Um, and then I think one other thing is that like looking at this case and kind of talking about the aftermath in terms of the justices who were involved, it really was like, of course their job is to disagree with each other. But this one, I think for a lot of justices was very personal and was like a very like there was a lot of um I think like personal reactions to it and like it just was a very almost like absurd case for many of them on either extreme and I think it just kind of like going from the 7-2 decision the 5-4 decision both of them had a like very long impact not only like showing up in today's policy but also in the court itself and I think it was one of the more like pronounced decisions in terms of divides and ideology that can be seen pretty clearly. Um, so I think that's really what I could say about that, other than the safe harbor deadline, which really did play a much bigger role than one would think. No, absolutely. And and still it goes to the fact that the, you know, this this deadline, whether it be arbitrary or not, you know, Bush was still, you know, seen to be the certified winner. And then with Gore conceding, it kind of ended all litigation and kind of just ended the whole deal, even though, you know, there's still a lot of people who are bitter and, uh, you know, can kind of see if, uh, you know, if things had gone a little bit differently or, if, you know, some ballots were seen to be, you know, differently cast that it really could have gone either way. But, you know, at the end of the day, there still needs to be a decision made. And at the end, you know, regarding electoral law, that, that everything defers to the U.S. Constitution. It can't just be improvised by you know state legislature or sorry uh, by the state supreme court uh even though the um the laws themselves uh, have to be made by the state legislature or by uh the federal legislature but um kind of going into you know its history and its, and its impact on u.s society you know with the previous couple election cycles keep in mind you know this was in the year 2000 when politics were not as widespread as they are today. Uh, everything is completely bipolar today uh, at, the, at the very extremes, I would argue. And, you know, with a lot of people today, there's kind of a feeling that, you know, maybe their vote doesn't count or maybe that there's some sort of interference in the electoral process from, you know, uh, cyber attacks or foreign powers or, you know, hostile entities. But, you know, it's also prevalent to mention that, you know, the court still does have a, a say in this. And it's, you know, it's happened five times in history. 
you know, uh, the only uh, five times, you know, this being one of them, uh, where a, a, a president-elect is, you know, chosen who did not receive the majority of the popular votes, but did receive the majority of the electoral votes. Uh, the only president to do it after uh, George W. Bush was Donald Trump in 2016. Um, and with how divisive politics are in American society today, I think it's very affable um, to mention that, you know, th something like this could happen again. And uh, with, you know, how tense relations are between, you know, the the, the political spectrum, um, it's, it's something to really keep an eye on. And uh, maybe I think a lot of Americans out there feel that the electoral process needs to be revised in some sense. And, you know, if uh, the perfect storm brews up where, you know, it's a very close, close race between, you know, the two frontline candidates, and it comes down to the judiciary, to the uh, judiciary again, you know, there could really be uh, an impetus to change electoral reform in the United States. So I don't know, it's something really to keep an eye on as we uh, move into the election cycle for 2024. I completely agree with that. And I think in some ways, it's a little... It was definitely like one of the first major times where you see another, like, simplistically speaking, like another branch of government not deciding an election, but like clearly having like a big, big hand in the way that things unfolded, which of right. course, like, isn't supposed to happen. And I think that's just like, again, like with everything today, like the big scale it's on, it's really, really interesting to think like, if something like this were to happen, like what would be the public response? What would be different? Like how many votes, like how small a margin would it have to be for like something like this to blow up in such a way again? And like, what would the outcome of that be? So I think like, it's just interesting because having this happen in the year 2000, like anyone who runs for office in the United States, like knows this happened and know, like, know, like they know today, like what, if if things would be the same, like how would that impact their chances, that kind of thing. So I think that was one of the major, major um, like outcomes of this. I, in addition to all like the, there was a lot of discontent like among the public about it. Some, you know, it just depended on a lot on ideology, like a lot on, you know, who won. Like if you were supporting George Bush, like your response would be different than if you were not. Like, I think that's a big thing, but also looking at it from like the perspective of people running for office, it's definitely interesting and I don't know it's good and it's bad for them so I think that's just a really interesting thing to look at how that kind of changed at the turn of the century no absolutely Grace absolutely uh, as tense as things are in this country um, you know it, it's it's nothing that we haven't been through before and uh, you know we can always overcome even the most divisive political campaigns so uh, you know, here's to 2024 being, you know, a little bit less chaotic than the election cycle of 2020. But uh, Grace, thank you again for another amazing podcast episode and for your incredible research. Uh, I really do appreciate you helping me out with this. And uh, that's another episode for The Court Report. So uh, everyone else listening, we will see you back in another episode. Uh, and uh, we look forward to, you know, enlightening you more about the uh, judicial process and how the Supreme Court affects American society and, uh, and our uh, political system. So thank you.